0: God, our Father, Lord, we glorify you today and we praise you. and We have gathered to worship and to give you glory and honor and praise. We are very grateful this day, Lord, for all that you have done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ and in his holy cross. We praise you and we thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. Oh God, I pray that the blood of Christ would be more and more precious to us as the days go by. And may your praise continually be upon our mouths for what you have done. We thank you for all of the rich blessing that you have given to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we ask, God, that you would strengthen us in our faith, that we might live lives that glorify you, that we might please you in every respect And bear fruit in every good work. We thank you for the work of faith. That you're doing in our hearts. We ask that your love. Would abound more and more. In our lives. In our families. In our friendships. In our fellowship. In the church. We pray God. That your love would abound in us more and more. Through true knowledge. And real discernment God. Help us to discern the clean from the unclean and the holy from the common. We thank you, Lord, for all that you are to us, all that you're doing in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, with that, we've been... um, We've been talking about the work of Jesus Christ and we spent quite a bit of time looking at the atonement and defining the atonement, and which we have defined as the whole scope of Christ's saving work. So at length we have discussed effectively all that it means that Christ has died for us and what that has done to reconcile us to God. Before we move on from talking about the work of Christ, I I want to address a very important issue, which is distinctions that need to be made in terms that we use to talk about salvation, specifically biblical terms that we use to talk about salvation. And I want to make sure that it's clear for everybody that they make a distinction in these certain ways that the Bible speaks about how We are saved in the process of being saved, if you will. So with that, we're going to be starting on page 51 this morning. And uh, moving forward from there. And we're going to talk about distinctions in the process of salvation. That's right, I said the process. The process of salvation. Okay? Bear with me, and we'll get to an explanation of what we mean by that. Distinctions in the process of salvation. When we use the word salvation in the biblical sense, we speak of the whole scope of Christ's saving work from first to last as it applies to the believer. So when we talk about salvation, we're talking about what happens to us who get saved, right? And we are... Then, and also called in the Bible, believers, right? There's a lot of names for us in the Bible, right? The church, right? The sons of God. I mean, there's a whole list of biblical terms that the scripture uses to talk about believers. But when we talk about salvation, we're talking about what happens to those who believe. And, of course, this is very simple, something we've talked about at great length, and everybody in here knows this we talk about salvation, we're talking about what happens when we get saved from sin and death by faith in Jesus Christ, amen? Well, this salvation was planned and promised by the Father. It was wrought and purchased by the Son, that is, worked and purchased by the Son, and is applied by the Holy Spirit to all whom God has intended to save. When you think about salvation, you should, you should always think about God. And when you think about any biblical doctrine, you should always think about God. He's the ground of all truth, right? And so when you think about salvation and how it happens, there should be this thought in your mind about how each member of the Godhead plays a different role in, the, in salvation, okay, which is what I just spoke to. God the Father planned it. God the Son worked it and purchased it. And God the Holy Spirit now applies it. And, and if you will, this speaks of the relationship that we as the believer have to each of the members of the Godhead. And it speaks to us about how to appreciate our relationship with God. Okay, So when we think about God the Holy Spirit and, and his, his work, His ministry to us, as a member of the Godhead, it's very distinct from the role that the Son has played. Okay, The Son came and gave His life and died upon the cross, and that is the atonement we've been discussing for 12 weeks. But now, the active agent in salvation is the Holy Spirit, who He has this whole other work and this whole other ministry, the ministry of regeneration and sanctification. And so, He's the active party in our salvation as it is applied to us he applies salvation to us okay so again when you think about salvation you should have this thought in your mind that each of the members of the godhead play a different role okay this is a, one of the re, one of the things we use to defend the doctrine of the trinity okay in other words there's not four different members that are named in scripture who play a role in salvation there's how many Three. Three. Why? Because God is triune. And more than that, each of the different three members of the Godhead play a different role in salvation. So when, even when we study salvation, we see the doctrine of the Trinity clearly in the scripture, okay? So, this is something that should always be the root and the basis for all biblical doctrine that we think about. It should be the character and nature of God. So because God is by, by nature triune, okay, We should see that played out in the doctrine of salvation. We should see that played out in the doctrines of ecclesiology and eschatology. Okay, because God is triune and that's how he interacts with his creation because he is three in one. Amen? Okay, so then. The nature of salvation, however, even though it is an eternal work, is much like a process that is worked out in time and space which culminates in eternal glory in the presence of God in the eternal state. So, what we're saying is salvation is something <coughs> that we possess and in possessing that it's something that lasts forever, it's eternal. However, it is we're we're in a process of experiencing salvation, okay? So the experience that we have of it in time and space is something that is worked out in stages in the scripture. And so as we talk about those stages, we we call it a process. It's the process of being saved. Okay? And I'll show you this in the scripture. Thus the Bible makes a distinction in the different stages of this process. These stages are referred to as salvation, sanctification, and glorification. Okay? So if we wanted to take... All of the scope of salvation and how we experience it, we could define it under one of these three categories. Okay? Salvation, sanctification, glorification. All right? You got that? You with me? Those are the three general categories of the experience of salvation in the life of the believer. Okay? Although the term salvation can be used to speak of the whole scope of these stages, it can also be distinguished from them. Okay, now, hear me out. We talk about salvation, and we talk about sanctification. Okay, salvation, sanctification, and glorification. And, and what the point I just made was, is that, Salvation can be used to speak of the whole scope of this, okay? But it is also, in Scripture, distinguished from these other things, okay? So you kind of just have to have this understanding about when we speak about salvation, we're speaking about the whole scope of Christ's saving work, typically, but not always, because sometimes salvation is referred to in the past tense as something we already possess that has already been wrought by the Son, okay? Okay? Uh, so we'll we'll get there. I'll show you what I mean. So then, understand there are these distinctions in the or stages in the process of salvation as we experience it. Okay, and at the same time, the word salvation can be used to speak of all of these. Okay, the word salvation can be used to speak of in very broad terms of the atonement in general of all all kinds of ways. Effectively. Salvation is what has happened when we believe. Okay? All right, so then. This is because salvation is described in three tenses past, present, and future. Here's another thing about these three stages of salvation. In this sense, where we are talking about it as a stage, salvation is a past tense thing. We have been saved right? Sanctification is a present reality. So when we talk about salvation, we say we are being saved, okay? I'm sorry. When we talk about sanctification, we say that we are being saved, all right? And then when we talk about glorification, this is a yet future tense, which has not yet happened, okay? Okay? This has been wrought and purchased by the Son, but has not yet been applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So then, uh, where do I get that? Well, I get that out of the Scripture. Let me show you. We were saved, past tense, by grace through faith in Christ. This is what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. For by grace you what? Have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast you see how in Ephesians 2.8 and 9, that's used as a past tense. You have been saved. You with me? Okay. Then, however, we are being saved even now. For instance, in Philippians 2.12. Now, this is just one scripture. There are many, many. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, what does he say? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure right so here paul tells us to do what to work out, to work out our salvation in the what present. in the present tense in the present tense so even though salvation is have been <laughs> saved by grace through faith we are working it out In the present tense, okay? Now, we could use many scripture references to make that point, but that's just one, and we'll see later on many, many more. However, we will also be saved in a yet future sense at the return of Christ. Hebrews 9.28 says something very similar to that. At this time, we will be completely delivered from the power and presence of sin and enter into the glorious presence of God. For instance, in Romans eight twenty three and following, it says this: "It says, and not only this, but w- but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, in other words, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we ourselves groan within ourselves. How many of you are groaning? <laughs> I guess I got a witness there, didn't I? we groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our body and you see what the bible says we groan waiting eagerly for what the redemption of our body right and even though our our our, uh, our soul has been redeemed past tense right we are eagerly awaiting the Redemption of our bodies, right? And that's how come we groan, right? Because this outer man is what dying day by day, but the inner man is being renewed by the Spirit and the strength of God. Amen. Okay. Therefore, in order to understand this great salvation we possess, it is important to grasp these different stages which we which are expressed in the Bible. You understand what I'm saying? It's very important as a Christian to understand these different uh, stages in the process of salvation. Because when you're reading the Bible, the Bible speaks of salvation in all of these tenses in various ways. And so in order for you to get your mind around that all, you need to have a category to put it into. So that when the Bible speaks about glorification, you understand this is something we hope for. This is something that's yet future. This is something we're waiting for to happen. But when the Bible is exhorting us and commanding us to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus and to make our behavior excellent, right, and and that our practice should conform to the Lord Jesus Christ, we understand that this is a process of being saved. In the current present state, we call sanctification. We are being sanctified. As we are sanctified, our practice conforms more and more to the practice of Jesus or to the image of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Okay. So then, let's talk about salvation. Let's talk about this one right here, the past work of salvation. The idea or concept of salvation is necessary from the fact that mankind has been alienated from God because of sin. Mankind has fallen under the darkness and power of sin through the destructive work of Satan and now exists in a world hopelessly destined to perish under the wrath of Almighty God. This is what the Bible says about every person in the world, okay? You're born into this state. What state? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived. See, we Christians all formerly lived like this. Like what? Dead in our transgressions and sins. Walking according to the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? Satan. Satan. He's what? The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Right? See, we all too formally walked, he says. Formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You see, we were just like the rest of mankind. What? Doing what? Walking after the prince of the power of the air. Following the lusts of our flesh. Indulging the desires of our flesh and of our mind. And we were by nature, we were naturally what? Children of wrath. That's what the Bible says. This is this is what happens when we sin. We become subject to the wrath of God. Just like God warned Adam and Eve. In the day that ye eat of that tree, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. You shall surely be alienated from God, who is the source of life. Amen? Well, sin has personally, get this, sin has personally alienated mankind from God. You understand what that means? That means that sin has alienated you from God, and sin has alienated me from God. It's a personal thing. Okay? It's not just a corporate thing. Yes. Sin in mankind corporately has alienated mankind from God. But most importantly, to everybody who has ears, to hear what I am saying, sin has personally alienated us from God. Okay? It's a personal thing. Sin is a very personal thing. Why? Because we as persons commit it. Right? Either by commission or omission. (laughs) And we find all kinds of unique ways to do it, don't we? Right? But let me tell you, it's a very personal thing. Sin is a personal thing that we do to offend God personally. Something we must understand. Sin has personally alienated mankind from God and caused us to be the objects of His wrath. You understand that when we sin against God, we personally offend Him and we personally become objects of His wrath. You understand? That means God is is angry with a holy indignation against me as a person. Okay? That's what happens when I sin. Now, of course, I'm under the blood of Christ, and my sin has been dealt with with the atonement. Amen? But generally speaking, when mankind sins against God, he becomes a personal offense to God, and he becomes personally subject to the wrath and judgment of God because of his sin. Amen? Okay. And and this sin has caused us to be objects of his wrath, that is, the manifestation of his holy moral judgment against it. So what is God's wrath? It is the manifestation of God's holy moral judgment against sin. That's what wrath is. Okay, it's the manifestation of it, the carrying out of it. The carrying out of God's holy moral judgment against sin. That's what wrath is. Okay? You remember when they're bringing up the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh? You remember that? You remember our our brother's name there? Uzzah? Right? Anybody who has a name Uzzah is worth remembering. (laughs) Right? But you remember what happened to Uzzah, right? Uzzah's in the procession. They're carrying up the Ark of God from Shiloh wanting to bring it to Jerusalem, right? And there's a great celebration happening. There's much rejoicing. God has anointed David as king over Israel. He's brought his kingdom to pass, and David now wants to bring the presence of God up to the city of Jerusalem. They're having this great parade, this great big shindig, bringing up the ark of God, and the cart on which the ark was being disobediently carried, right, because... They were supposed to carry it on their shoulders, but the Levites were supposed to carry it. They didn't do what God said, so they have it on this cart. It's on the cart. The cart falls in the rut, and the ark almost falls off the cart, and Uzzah reaches out to stabilize the ark of the covenant, and pow, man, fire breaks out from God, and his wrath kills Uzzah. All right. This is God's holy... Moral judgment against sin. Will you say, man, the guy was just trying to hold the thing up. Right? Yeah. We have all kinds of neat excuses for our sin, don't we? God said, don't touch that box. Don't touch it. If you touch it, you'll die. Right? He wasn't kidding. He was serious. He meant it. Right? So, if you will, uh, you know, just a demonstration of the wrath of God. Uh, Just a a, a clear presentation of the wrath of God in a little section of scripture, okay? But the, the general principle remains. God's wrath is his holy moral judgment against sin. Not just that, but the manifestation of his holy moral judgment against sin, okay? Which has an ultimate sense, and that is death, which is separation from God eternally and from his good presence to bless, okay? That's what his wrath is. It's a separation from his... Good presence to bless. And so it is described as, in Jesus' words, eternal punishment. Because there's nothing good there. When you finally fall under the manifestation of God's ultimate wrath, there is no good thing there at all. Okay? So then, <clears throat> this wrath is culminated in death, eternal separation from God's good presence to bless. Now you say, where do you get that from? Here's where we get that from. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8 and following describes how death is separation from God eternally. Okay? Here's what it says. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8. It's talking about when Jesus returns from heaven. The earlier context talks about when Jesus returns from heaven and blazing fire with his powerful angels. And this is what he does. It says... Verse 8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So here he defines who this retribution is going to come upon. Who is it? Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Okay? Those two are one and the same. Okay? Because, of course, if you obey the gospel, you know the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Right? And if you don't obey the gospel, you don't know him. You've neither seen him or known him, 1 John 3, 6, right? Okay, so he goes on. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You see, when this uh, uh, retribution that God deals out to those who don't obey the gospel and don't know him When it's described in the Bible, it's described as an eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So it's the idea of being shut out from the presence of God. And this is how Jesus described it, right? He said that they will be put away into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, he says, where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. That's how Jesus described it. He said that was a place of outer darkness. You see, away from the glory of the power of God. Glory is light. You with me? But this place is outer darkness. Okay? This is how the Bible describes this retribution or wrath of God that gets poured out on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. And it tells us when this will happen. It says, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. So, you kind of get a sense of what we're being saved from. Are you with me? It's severe. And it's very important to understand. There isn't a more important thing or concept for any human to understand than this. To be saved from the wrath of God. (coughs) Okay, are you with me? Therefore, being saved, or the idea of salvation, is to be saved from sin and death, so that we are delivered from its power and transformed into a new creation of God. But this deliverance from sin and death is really only secondary. Now listen to what I'm saying. This deliverance from sin and death is really only secondary. When we talk about being saved from sin and death and the consequences and hell and eternal destruction and all of that, okay, that's only secondary when we talk about what we're being saved from. Okay, hear me out. It is important to note that the, in a primary sense, we are really being saved from God himself. We are being saved from God himself. Now, this doesn't preach in the popular pulpits, okay, And it is entirely offensive when in personal evangelism you tell somebody that they're going to be saved from God if they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they say, well, what's there to be saved from? Isn't God a big grandpappy in the sky patting everybody on the head and wishing everybody well? Well, that's not what God does with sinners. You know what God does with sinners? He destroys them. That's what the Bible says. He offers a refuge, and if we don't take the offer, we wind up in destruction. That's what the Bible says. That's why Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men to what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Amen? Be saved from what? From sin and death, but ultimately from God himself. Okay? Hear me out. God is the one who is personally offended by sin. And unless we are reconciled to him, having our relationship restored and his holy wrath because of sin satisfied, we will perish under the just consequences due us because of sin. This wrath is God's wrath, his personal outrage towards sin and the persons who perpetrate it. Are you with me? You see... It's real easy just to take this and kind of just kind of brush it off and make it one big general category and put that over there and say, well, that's hell and death and that happens for people who sin against God who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's real easy to put man in a corporate box and just say, here he is over here dying in his sin. It's another thing entirely for somebody to embrace the idea that they have personally offended a holy God and that God is personally going to destroy them if they don't repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand? And when you start speaking to people like this, it becomes very offensive. If you do it long enough, they're going to hang you on a cross, just like they did with Jesus. Because you know what? That's what He told them. He said, you've personally offended God, and if you don't repent, you're going to perish under His wrath. Amen? This is a very personal thing. But this is what the scripture says. It says that the wrath of God is God's outrage toward what? Toward sin, right? Romans 1.18 and 19 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Or all sin, you see? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against sin, right? Right? What kind of sin? The sin of men. The sin of mankind. Men and women. Got it? Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. Everybody's got a conscience by nature that's telling them sin is wrong. And The more educated that conscience becomes, the more clear becomes their, their violations of sin to their own conscience. Amen? Well, we we are saved from the being of God himself who is governing the universe by his providence and is himself the avenger of sin. Have you ever thought about God in these terms? That God is the avenger of sin. It actually says that in the New Testament. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't have the reference. If you really want it, come see me and I'll find it for you. But I think it's 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, Maybe right about verse uh, 4. But... The idea is that God himself is the avenger of sin. What does that mean? That means when sin happens, what has happened? God's been personally offended, right? Who's going to do something about that? God is. He's the avenger. Okay, that's the idea. God will make sure that every unrepentant sinner receives the just recompense for their sins and is destroyed in hell forever. And let me tell you something, that's a very good thing. You think, you, you, you say, you mean people going to hell forever is a good thing? You better believe it is. That's why it exists. Because everything that God does is good. You know why? Because God is good. And you know what a good God does with evil? He destroys it. First Thessalonians 4.6 God is the avenger of sin. Okay? So think about this. I'm, I'm saying that God's been personally offended by sin, and God is personally the avenger of sin, and that the Bible uh, describes how his wrath is a personal outrage towards sin and the persons who perpetrate it. This is what the Bible says, Psalm 145.20. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Or what about Romans 2, 5 through 9? There it says, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, Wrath and indignation. Verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Okay? And here the Bible says we're storing up wrath for the day of wrath and the righteous judgment of God. Okay? Make no mistake about it, family. We are warning people to flee from the wrath of God and to find a refuge in the cross of our Lord Jesus which, by the way, is the only refuge from the wrath of God. Can you imagine the horror of this? Can you imagine the terror of this? There isn't anything more severe and horrifying in all of the ages of history than to be a personal subject of the wrath of the Almighty God. What has happened when you finally come under the judgment of God and there is no escape? Tell me. When God is your enemy, ultimately... Where shall you hide? The caves and the rocks won't do it for you. Are you with me? This is why we persuade people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to flee from the coming wrath, that sin has angered God, and He has warned that we shall die. This is the righteous revelation that is in the gospel. Amen? That's why it's good news. <laughs> And I mean, who really, knowing these things, wouldn't repent and believe and receive the gift of God by His grace whereby He pardons us and makes us sons and puts on the ring and the robe and the fatted calf and the feast and the glory? Who in their right mind would deny all of those privileges that God can give? Only somebody who loves their sin more than they love God. Are you with me? It is God who has been offended by sin and it is God who will inflict his wrath upon those who continue in sin and do not believe the gospel. I want to make one other thing clear. I always hear preachers say this, or I frequently, I'm sorry, I frequently hear preachers say this. God doesn't send anybody to hell. Uh, People go to hell because they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. (laughs) Okay, well, let's just take that apart just for a minute, all right? True. People go to hell because they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Right? Amen? Yeah. But let me tell you how they get there. God sends them there. Okay, that's how they get there. God is the one who created hell. Knowing full well who will be there in the end. Amen? And let me tell you something. People go to hell. Let me tell you why. This is a big secret. You ready for this? People go to hell because they sin against God. That's what the Bible says. The wages of sin is what? Death. Which we just described there in 2 Thessalonians as being shut out from the presence of God with eternal destruction. Right? The wages of sin is death. People go to hell because God destroys them in hell because they sinned against Him personally. He's personally hacked off because of sin. And He's going to avenge it. Okay? Family, that's the old, old story. That's the old, old gospel. It's the same gospel that Jesus was preaching when He was here in the flesh. And that's the reason they hung him on the cross. Because he testified that men's deeds were evil and they hated him for it. So they killed him. You with me? And that's why Christians get persecuted. Nobody wants to hear that God's angry with them. Right? As a matter of fact, they hate that so much, they'll kill you for it. Well, dear reader, If we do not believe the gospel, we will fall hopelessly under the judgment of Almighty God. Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved from the wrath of God, which is coming upon every person who has not taken refuge in Him. This is why you cannot be saved in any other world religion. There are not many paths to God. There's one path. There's one way. It's one narrow door. And the doorkeeper is Jesus That's why he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. He says in another place, I am the door. Are you with me? You can't be saved by any self-help method. It ain't going to happen. You can't come to God through Islam. You can't come to God through Buddhism or Shintoism. You can't come to God through any means of works which is what every world religion is. It's a religious fig leaf where man tries to cover up the shame of his nakedness and man's covering of his own nakedness is not sufficient to satisfy God. Amen? Amen? Amen. This is what we discussed at length over the last 12 weeks. That the only thing that satisfies God is the death of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the provision that God made to satisfy His holy wrath towards sin. Amen? Are you with me? I mean, it's not, there's not even a chance. You understand what I'm saying? Think about whatever world religion you want to think about. Alright? Just get it in your mind. Let me tell you. There's not even a chance. You know why? They don't have a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of, wor- of the world, who is God, very God in the flesh, dying on a cross as a substitutionary <laughs> sacrifice for sin. Personally and vicariously. Remember how Jesus in His vicarious death died for us personally? You with me? No other world religion preaches that Jesus who alone is the way to satisfy God. So you shouldn't even think with doubts. You know, all these Buddhist people I know, they're such good people. Well, you know, according to our worldly judgment, they may be very good, moral, happy, loving people. But you have to understand, they're sinners. And they have offended the holy God. And this is an infinite offense against the righteousness of God. And He's going to avenge their sin if they don't find refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you with me? And there isn't any other way to come to God except through the cross. Not only this, in the Christian church, it's loaded, full of people who think they're going to get to heaven because they're a good Baptist or a good Methodist or I grew up in a Christian home or my dad was a pastor or, you know, write down all the ways you want that you think are going to satisfy God. And on the day of judgment, there's only one right answer. Jesus You get to the judgment day. Let me tell you, there's only one right answer. Why should I let you into my heaven? Here's the answer. You ready? Because Jesus died for me. Because I've trusted him by faith. It's the only right answer. Are you with me? (laughs) It's really simple. The gospel is really simple. Although it has all these complex, beautiful manifestations of the character of God, when you get it right down to brass tacks, it's real simple. Are you with me? It's portrayed with Adam and Eve in the garden when they sin against God. Right? And then their conscience is is hurt. And so they run off and in shame they, they hide. Right? And they make a little clothing for themselves to hide their nakedness. You remember, before that, they didn't even know they were naked. But once they sinned, they figured out, well, we're naked. We're ashamed. We don't want to see God. We're ashamed of God, right? Well, they sinned, right? So what did they do? They ran off and they got fig leaves. Remember? You ever see the old, uh, was it Michelangelo painting? And Adam and Eve were standing there and they got fig leaves on, right? And you know what God does when he sees that? He goes out and he provides for them a covering. And that covering is what? Animal skins. And this animal skins to cover is symbolic of what? The sacrifice. A blood sacrifice. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there will be no remission of sin. It's a prophecy of the gospel is what it is and it's, in, a, in, the, in, a, in the typology sense. Right, and, But what it's saying to us is that, number one, God has to provide a sacrifice to cover the shame of your nakedness because you can't do it with your own fig leaf. Amen? And this is what Protestant Christianity needs to hear. God, God isn't going to overlook your sin because you show up in church, raise your hands and sing songs, read your Bible once a day and throw your money in the plate. You understand? Those are just things that people who love God do. (laughs) But they don't earn you any merit before God. Without the cross, they're filthy rags. They actually enrage the holiness of God. Are you with me? Understand? Is it clear? Lenny? An example of what you've been talking about might be the city of Refugees in Deuteronomy. How... Somebody accidentally kills somebody, mm-hmm. and there's the Avenger of the Blood mm-hmm. who seeks after that person, going mm-hmm. safety were these three cities, mm-hmm. the cities of refuge, that they could hide in, mm-hmm. and and they could stay in there until the death of the high priest, mm-hmm. which is interesting in itself. Oh yeah, because mm-hmm. that you know, we we need to stay in in Christ, mm-hmm. and it took His death. Mm-hmm. to make us safe. Amen. Yep. Amen. And so here's another portrait of the gospel, the cities of refuge right. in the law, right? And, of course, there are many. There are, the Old Testament's filled with typology and, and symbols of the cross, right? The volume of the book is written of him. Amen? Okay, so then, uh, grab this very important thing, okay? You're being saved from God. You're being saved from God. Are you with me? And because you're saved from God, you're saved from sin and death. God is primary. You don't want to be God's enemy. Are you with me? And you are His enemy until you've come under the refuge of the cross. That's how the Bible describes it. Okay? Okay? I'll read for you Hebrews 10:26 through 31. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as an unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's how the Bible describes it. So, you get the point here? Don't deliberately go on sinning after you've received the knowledge of the truth. Jesus summed it up in one word. Repent. Amen? Okay, reconciliation to God then is absolutely necessary in order to be saved. This reconciliation not only requires our negative guilt to be removed or expiated, but also a positive righteousness credited imputation to us. This salvation from the wrath of God then is exactly what the gospel declares is available to all who will by faith trust in the finished work of Jesus the Christ. And this is what's portrayed in Romans 5:9. There it says, "Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him." You see that? Listen, in Jesus, we get justified by his blood, and we get saved from God's wrath through him. (coughs) You with me? Through Jesus and the finished work offered in the atonement, we can be fully reconciled to God and saved from the wrath of God and the power of sin. This salvation is pictured in many ways in the Old Testament, but its most vivid picture is that of the deliverance of the Israelites from the bondage of slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. That deliverance brought them from the tyranny in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. In this, the mighty saving power of God was demonstrated dramatically as the Israelites formed a holy nation of priestly servants of the Lord. In the Exodus... We have a pattern or type or shadow or analog of the reality of salvation which has now come to us in our Lord Jesus Christ who is himself the Savior, the promised one who fulfills all of the types and shadows of the Old Testament. And so if you will, you look at the whole Exodus account as one big analog or one big type of the salvation that we possess in Christ. Okay, it's very vivid in the Old Testament through the earthly pictures that are there of what the heavenly blessing of salvation we possess is now. This is what the scripture says when it refers to the Old Testament and it talks about the law and the pictures that are in the Old Testament and and how we should view those in light of Christ. Consider with me Hebrews ten one. Look what it says there. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things. You see, the law is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form, right? He says here, which can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. The point was, in the old Levitical priesthood, in the law, right, that those guys were offering up sacrifices again and again and again and again. And the writer of the Hebrews is pointing out, look, that was just a shadow, but not the real form of it all. The real form of it all is what? Jesus incarnated, God incarnated in the flesh, dying on the cross once for all is the term in Hebrews. Amen? Amen? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. Okay? It is finished. It is done. It is paid for. Amen? Amen? Consider Colossians 2, 16 and following. A similar statement is made about the law in the Old Testament. There it says, Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now you understand that the, the law prescribes what? It prescribes certain uh, uh, ceremonial rules by which you are to eat, and ceremonial rules by which you are to drink, and ceremonial rules which you are to celebrate certain festivals, and certain new moon celebrations, and certain what? sabbath days right and he says don't let anyone judge you about that stuff because those things were what a mere shadow of what is to come but the substance belongs to christ now we're in christ he is our food now we're in christ he is our drink now we're in christ he is our sabbath amen understand this is how the New Testament speaks about how we interpret the Old Testament. You see that? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you better be eating kosher food. <coughs> Amen. Amen. No ham sandwiches. No ham sandwiches. And if you work on Saturday, we're going to have to stone you. Amen. <laughs> you with me? Amen. There's a reason why we don't keep the law. Are you with me? It's not to say that not working on the Sabbath isn't a good thing and a holy thing for those who want to do it. The point is, it doesn't earn you merit with God. It may give your, it may be the wisest way to give your body good rest. It may be a glorious way to celebrate and worship God on your day of rest and a day uh, uh, wholly given over to the worship of the Lord. Okay. Glorious way to celebrate the Sabbath. If you want to do that, brother, that is holy as long as it is consecrated by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the blood of His cross. Are you with me? Okay. Of course, that's a whole other subject for another day, isn't it? The New Testament, then, is the account of how Jesus the Christ did come and actually bring the fulfillment of all of the promises of God to save his chosen people from the bondage of sin and its destructive consequences of wrath and death. Okay? The New Testament <laughs> describes for us what Christ has done in regard to saving mankind from sin and death and wrath and judgment and God. Okay. Now we read of the realities of salvation which have been accomplished already by Christ. Remember here, we have been saved by grace through faith, right? The New Testament speaks of realities of salvation which have been accomplished already by Christ and we now eagerly await the fulfillment of all that he has worked as the stages of salvation are being brought to pass in time and space, which will all culminate in the eternal state. This will happen when the Lord Jesus returns and brings all earthly rule and power under his dominion and destroys all his enemies, including death itself. Okay? So, for instance, the New Testament would say something like this. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die... So also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, right? Jesus was the firstfruits of those who've been made alive, right? After that, those who are Christ at his coming. When Jesus comes, guess what? We're all going to be made alive. Remember that groaning for the redemption of our bodies? It's going to happen at the return of Christ in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trump, we shall be changed. Amen? Yeah. And this mortal shall put on immortality, and this perishable, the imperishable. Amen? Verse 24 Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. You see, in the millennial kingdom, Jesus is going to put his enemies under his feet. All of them. Every last one of them. And when he's done, and the whole world full of rebels has been subdued, he's going to hand over the kingdom to God the Father. That's what it says here in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. We are now in that stage of fulfillment where we eagerly await his second coming. During these last days, this salvation is now being applied to the ministry of the Holy Spirit to all the elect people of God during this age as we wait until the future fulfillment of the age to come. When Christ will consummate the ages, okay? So the Bible categorizes how God is working out the stages of fulfillment of the plan of redemption, okay? In the New Testament, this present evil age that we live in now from Galatians 1, it's a present evil age, is going to be consummated in the age to come, all right? And I'll just kind of give you this little blip. I guess I didn't get to that other stuff. But when you think about the way that the New Testament speaks about these stages, we call this two-age construction. The two ages are the present evil age. These are New Testament terms. And the age to come when everything is going to be consummated. You with me? And our bodies are going to be redeemed. And this mortal is going to put on immortality. And this perishable ain't never going to perish again. And God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there will no longer be any mourning or dying or crying or pain. Amen. Amen? It's it's all coming. Let me tell you, soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Amen? Amen? <laughs> better believe it. It's gonna happen rather quickly. Are you ready? There's only one way to be ready. Remember the right answer? The cross. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your love and your kindness to us, for this great salvation that we possess. I pray, God, that it would be precious to us. God, I pray that we would ponder it, that we would meditate upon it, that we would contemplate all that you are doing in us and through us and what you have done for us. And God, may we be motivated by thanksgiving to live a life that pleases you. Lord, to live a life in communion with you moment by moment celebrating your goodness and your mercy which follows us all the days of our life. We honor you and we praise you because of Jesus' precious blood. Amen.